in your Bible to the book of Psalms. This has been a, uh, a new series that we have been endeavoring upon, and Jeff and I are going to be uh, taking it together uh, when, when he is not available. Um, I will be stepping in, and, and we'll be working together to, to walk through the first book, clarify, the first book of the Psalms together. So uh, if you could please turn to Psalm chapter 3. I am going to read aloud, and I would ask you to follow along with me as we hear God's word proclaimed. Psalm chapter 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Psalm chapter 3. Now in Psalm 1, a few weeks back when, when Jeff began this series, we were introduced to the Blessed One. And it introduced us to two ways of going about living this life. There would be the path of the blessed, the path of the blessed, and the path of the wicked. Psalm 2 introduces us to the Son. The king whom God has set upon his holy hill, who offers up mercy to the raging nations and calls them to rest under his rule and reign. Now, these two chapters have in essence offered us an introduction to the entirety of the Psalter, the entirety of the book of the Psalms. And so now as we turn our attention to Psalm 3, we can see that it is actually considered by many to be the beginning of the body of the Psalms. This Now the introduction has concluded and we are getting into the meat of the Psalms. Psalm 3 is a psalm of many firsts, in fact. It's the first psalm with a title linking it to David explicitly. It's also a first, the first psalm to be categorized as a psalm of lament. It's the first psalm to have this enigmatic direction in it of Selah. And uh, along with all of this, uh, it is nonetheless proclaiming something that is not new. Though it is a first for many things, it is not proclaiming anything new. Rather, it is proclaiming the same truths that have been ringing since the ancient one began to reveal himself. They simply point to the Lord and his counsel. So turn with me as we begin to look deeply in God's word in Psalm chapter 3. He says, 
Oh, Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, from the get-go, I would expect that we could see that we are not in the ideals of Psalm 1 and 2 anymore. Psalm 3 begins to dive us into this blessed man in the deep pits of gritty reality. He begins to speak in a way that most people can look about their own lives and say, yes, indeed, I've been there. Psalms is not going to present to us a view of life that's going to be filled with rose-colored glasses. Rather, it is going to be explicitly honest about the broken world about. And David has shifted in his tone in this book as he begins to lament his circumstances. It, It will do us great benefit, I'm quite certain, to notice that one of the very first chapters getting into God's hymn book to the prayer book of the saints through the years begins with a cry out to God in and amidst suffering for deliverance. It is the cry of one who is in need of the Lord. And, and so what we're going to begin to see is that this path of blessing that's held forth to the blessed one this path of true prosperity might not look at all like what we would have elected had we had the opportunity to choose. Rather, God has not promised a path of ease in this life. He offers his beloved people, his blessed presence, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. I'm very grateful that I get to preach this psalm particularly because it it, it has done a lot of work in helping me interpret it already, in fact, in the title. Psalm 3, like I said, was the first psalm to have a title that intrinsically links it to David. And so it's been quite helpful in my understanding of this text to go to directly where it says it is written within that context. And so let me give then a brief overview in order to understand the the whereabouts of what David's heart is doing as he's writing this psalm, we're going to need to turn to 2 Samuel. And what takes place in 2 Samuel, particularly chapters 15 through 17, will give us a direct context of what David is intending to express when he writes his lament. Now, in 2 Samuel 15, we see King David, pardon, let's let's back up even a little bit further. We see David, this ruddy heartbeat of God. And we begin to see that he is a very, very messy king who's often proven to be a drink of salt water that makes you long for the true anointed king, the one whom will answer that which King David stirs up in our hearts a desire for. One event that we see this takes place in 2 Samuel 11. As we see David rape Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband as he then begins to hide his sin and dwell in it quite contentedly. Now, fast forward a bit and Nathan shows up to confront David. 
he rebukes him, and God promises that he will be raising up evil from amidst his own house in 2 Samuel 12, 11. Well, then we, we, we skip forward a bit, and we find that David has a son named Amnon. And this son, Amnon, happens to see and lust after his sister, Tamar. Now, Amnon is driven sick in want for this sister, particularly because he knows he cannot have her. And so he takes a page from his father's book, and he sets up a trap for his sister, Tamar, and he takes her. Now, this becomes known, this hideous, wretched, wicked act becomes known to, Tam, uh, to Tamar's brother, Absalom. And Absalom takes Tamar into his home and cares for her and begins a bubbling anger at his brother Amnon. Well, eventually, Absalom decides to pay back his brother. He's going to get even to the ability that he has to provide justice. David, meanwhile, sits back and joins a myriad of wretched fathers in the Old Testament and does absolutely nothing to defend his child. Thus, Absalom grew in anger. He sets a trap. And eventually in 2 Samuel 13, pardon, 2 Samuel 14, he sets a trap and kills his own brother, Amnon. Absalom then flees and a few years later is brought back. And what he begins to do is sitting in bitter anger toward his own father, King David, he begins to set out a plot to overtake God's anointed king. And so he begins to sneakily undermine David in the public courts. He begins to win the hearts of the Israelites. And he begins to take his father's throne by secrecy. Now in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom is finally ready. He sneaks away. He has himself declared as king over his own father's people. And he sets out an overthrow, a revolt to take out King David. God's anointed. And then David, with his tail between his legs, flees from home, flees from his kingdom with a small number of faithful followers. And at this point, David's life becomes very treacherous. To add insult to injury, David's personal advisor and counselor, Ahithophel, turns to support Absalom. He begins to actually help David's son overthrow him. And seemingly, all of Israel begins to gather together against David, God's anointed king. Just as this is getting worse, a descendant of Saul named Shimei hears of David's flight and he runs out to meet the king. This man, whose life was spared, who was welcomed into David's kingdom, then begins hurling stones at King David. As this king runs like a flea-ridden dog, bowing beneath the hurling rocks of his enemy, Shimei uses this as an opportunity to curse David and say that it was because he spilled the family blood of Saul that this has come about him. Shimei cries, justice. At last, sweet justice 
God has abandoned you. Shimei uses this as an opportunity to be like a mosquito, hidden in intimate places, protected by the power of others, biting at the heels of an already running king. And it's here that we intersect with our psalm. It's that context that gives us understanding when we turn to this lament, what is going on in the heart of David. And we see a king who is at the bottom of the bottom. He is a king who has had everything ripped out of his hands, his dignity, his family, his home, his throne. His people have betrayed him. His enemies have capitalized and cherished his agony. He is in a state of utter turmoil and terrible neediness. David writes this psalm in the midst of that chaos. Now he writes it in a relatively straightforward manner, moving thought by thought. And so let me give you a brief outline of how we're going to try and, and walk through this psalm. Verse, verses 1 and 2 contain what we'll call David's raw experience. This is a confession of his true and painful struggles. Verses 3 and 4 speak of David's remembrance, what he calls to mind, what he knows to be true, and what he renews his mind with. Verses 5 and 6 describe the, fr the fruit of his renewed hope. In and amidst this trial. And finally in verses 7 and 8. We find his confident dependence. On the Lord. Let us then turn our attention. To, to this anointed King David's raw experience. In verses 1 and 2. He says, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Where does David turn in the midst of this terrible situation? He begins his psalm not with a cry for, O oh armies, O oh armies. He does not begin his psalm, O oh come mighty men. He does not begin his psalm in hopeless despondency. Rather, Right from the beginning, he sets out in earnest and honest crying out to the Lord. He doesn't sugarcoat his situation. He doesn't pull up his bootstraps. Nor does he just ignore his situation. But he pleads as a hurting child to his father. The Lord's anointed is one with many foes and many enemies. And here David gives his people a song to sing when it seems as though their enemies are multiplied against them. He says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David's enemies are ruthless. Here we see they're attacking him at the center of who he is. The word he uses for soul conveys the innermost being. Luther says of this word that David has in mind the seat of his emotions when he speaks of his very soul. 
It is not just that his enemies have multiplied themselves for his destruction, but they have come for his personal, intimate pain and suffering. To destroy his kingdom as well as his happiness. They attack him personally. This is a rebellion from his own ranks. This is not an onslaught of foreign forces. This is a betrayal of his close and personal friends, as we see in chapter 16. This isn't the nations raging. You see, in Psalm 2, the nations rage against God's anointed king. But here, the nation raging is his own people. It is his own people that have rejected him taking him off of the throne and calling out for his death. Absalom, by aligning himself against God's anointed, takes the seat alongside of Saul and those like him and takes the seat against God himself. For to seek to dethrone God's anointed is to dethrone God himself. Thus the people of Israel reject God's anointed and have the audacity to even in the midst of this believe that indeed God himself has rejected King David. Now, it's certainly possible when he says, many are saying of me, there is no salvation in God. It's possible that he speaks of his enemies that are raging against him. We see some evidence of that. But, but there is also possibly another way of understanding it. It could be though... Though the enemies do rage, he's actually describing the words of those who are with him. His friends and closest followers who walk with him out of Jerusalem. We see in 2 Samuel 15, 23, And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. It, it could be that as the king flees with his head bowed, barefoot and weeping as he runs, that all of his companions, out of despondency, are looking at their leader and are going, wait a second, he's the anointed king. God has rejected him. In a sense, if this is true, then even David's companions who are fleeing with him though they're not rebelling against him, are acting a bit as Job's wife, heaping misery upon an already miserable matter. How difficult it is when we are attacked by enemies. How much worse is it when we're betrayed by loved ones? And what agony of hopelessness is there when even the caring counsel from those who love us, turns to a dagger and knife in our soul. David is low. He could be describing the sneering cries of his enemy or the mournful laments of those who are near to him and see no earthly means of escape. It could be. Yet, what do we know for certain? To where does David run? He does not give his ear to his counselors, either for or against him. He turns to the Lord. 
Does he throw a spear at the one he fears will take his throne? No. Does he give himself over to bitter hopelessness and utter despondency? No. David tells us exactly what he does when he finds himself in these dire straits. But first, he calls us to take a brief pause. I'm going I'm to give as much time as, to this as I can, faithfully. But the word selah is first introduced in this psalm. It's used only, where in, only in the book of Psalms, and I believe three times in the book of Habakkuk. Here's, here's what we know for certain. David writes a note to those singing the song. To those who would be singing the song, he wants them to change something about what they're doing. Don't just sing through this, he says. No. Here he's trying to point out something that is very important in his situation. He's drawing attention to the fact that what those of this world have perceived by watching his circumstances is that he has been abandoned by God. That there is no salvation to be found for this man in the Lord. There is no help for him. Whether eternal help or immediate, they say he will find none in the Lord. And David calls our attention to that for just a moment. Then verses 3 and 4. What does David do in these dire straits? David starts talking to the Lord about what he knows to be true. But you, O Lord, David says, I know what's going on. I see what's happening here. I see my circumstances. I'm watching this happen. I am not blind to it. But... There's something else I need to call to mind here. You see, it is not just that I am isolated in these circumstances. But I know my God. I know who he is. And he begins to renew his mind. Calling to remembrance remembrance, three aspects of who David knows God to be. He says, number one, God is David's shield. Number two, God is his glory. And number three, God is the lifter of David's head. David says that God is a shield about him. Now this is not to say as though God is like a little buckler that he can kind of maneuver and block a couple of things as he wishes and wills. Rather, he says that God is a shield about him, all around him. This is utter and complete coverage. Anywhere that there is an enemy about him that they have set themselves to attack him, they will meet and they will encounter the creator God as his defender. There are no weak spots. This is the idea of a shield fully encompassing and guarding him from all strikes. As a sword will first strike a shield before striking the one who holds it, so David says, God is the one who bears all attacks against him. As if the first strike against David is against God himself. Something Jesus shares a very similar understanding of in Acts 9.4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me. Oh, God is a shield about me. Not only that, 
But if any of the strikes are to actually touch his anointed, this means they must go through first the allowable, understanding, sovereign hand of the one shielding him. So, David carries on. You are a shield about me. My glory. David says that God is his glory. David is fleeing from his home. He's fleeing from his throne. He's fleeing from his family. He's fleeing from all earthly comforts. He's fleeing from his honorable position. And he has become lowly and mistreated as a criminal. But to David, this all amounts to nothing. Why? He recalls to mind who God is. You see, those things are not my glory. God is my glory. It's the Lord that gave David his kingdom. It's the Lord that has promised to give him an everlasting throne. It is the Lord who has promised to build him a house that would know no end. So here, David recalls to mind the second aspect of who God is to him. He is his glory. God's gifts are not where David's happiness resides. God's generosity is not where David finds his identity, his purpose, his value, his position before God. No, it is the Lord himself who is his glory. David reminds himself that of all the gifts of God and all of the position and all of, and all of people's acceptance, if he were to have all of those things but not the Lord himself, he has nothing. Oh, so therefore, if he has no earthly good, if he has no such comfort in this life, but he has God, he has all the glory there is to have. Finally, David reminds himself that it is the Lord who lifts his head. Man, talk about a phrase you wish you could go into, but I'm not going to. David is fleeing for his life. Rocks are pelting at him from wicked Shemai. He is slinking about as a cockroach, avoiding even the slightest glimpse of light. His head is bowed. All earthly pride and glory is gone. There's no more dancing king in the streets here. This is a bent, weeping, broken, old man. The dancing king is replaced by a man in utter turmoil, weakness, and shame. His head stoops low. But David knows something. He knows yet something for sure. And yet notice he has to call it to mind. Never grow weary of calling to mind what you already know. He says, I know you, Lord, it is that is the lifter of my head. The changing of my circumstances will not change who I am. Because who I am depends only on you. 
Do you see where David gets his hope here? Do, do, do you see that this is not a cry of what he, he feels to be true? Rather, this is an agonizing plea, an utter lament of what's happening. He's not just ignoring his situation. Rather, he's calling to mind the truth to renew him. God himself was the one who promised this upon David in 2 Samuel 12, 11. David cries out to God. He will give no ear to the way that the world interprets his circumstances. For he knows the Lord is his shield. The Lord is his glory. The Lord is the lifter of his head. If his head is to be lifted, it will be by God's hand, the one who is his shield, the one who is his very glory. These three things are such a sweet comfort for those in and amidst terrorizing circumstances, are they not? Spurgeon says of this passage, what a divine trio of mercies is contained in this verse. Defense for the defenseless, glory for the despised, and joy for the comfortless. David calls to mind. Well then, what does he do? Verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David recalls now past times of deliverance. He remembers times that he has called upon the Lord, and he has answered him. David answered, or pardon, God calls David from his holy hill, from which we learn that God has set his king, his blessed king, against whom the nations rage in vain. And that is from where the Lord answers David. Possibly David has in mind he's pondering those dark nights fleeing from Saul. Perhaps he's thinking of the endless years of battle. Perhaps it goes all the way back to the vicious assaults and attacks of wild animals as he stood as a boy with a stick and a flock of sheep. But nonetheless, each memory of God's prior deliverance through his life is not wasted as a forgotten occurrence. Rather, each memory of God's deliverance is recycled again and again, bolstering continually his hope in the Lord's continued deliverance. You've answered me before. You are who you are. You will answer me again. Every providential protection from the claw of the lion in years past now reminds David that however this search situation turns out, he can know that the Lord will even deliver him if it be through death. David recalls to mind that the ear of God is tuned to his cry. He takes hope in a God who hears the cry of the worm, according to Psalm 22.6. And then he says again, Selah. Pay attention, O singer. Stop here. Ponder. Think. The Lord has indeed answered me from his holy hill. The enemies David faces say God has rejected him. But David has seen a great proof 
in his history past that that cannot be true. Not because of his righteousness. He knows he has none. He knows it is upon his head that this has fallen due to his sin. No, but it is God who does not change. He knows who his God is, and this God has answered his cries, and he will do so again. Well, we move on to verses 5 and 6. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. We hear a tone shift. He begins lamenting his circumstances, his raw, real situation. Next, we hear of his renewal, what he calls to mind, to fix his soul on the Lord. And now we hear the fruit that is beginning to produce through that. He says this, I lay down and slept. That's enough for half of us right there. Oh, if I could just sleep for glory's sake. What is the fruit of his contemplation? What is the fruit of his renewal of mind? Though the waves rage and the torrents do not cease, David's mind is renewed. And there is a sprung well deep of peace in David. What does David do? He slept. He rested. Though the sea rages treacherously and those about him cry out in fear and despondency, he is found to be sleeping. Resting in the one who will hear his cry. But he rested not only. He says, I awoke again. For God has sustained me. What beautiful words to those who are tired. To those who are wringing their hands in fretful worry. In contrast to this very point, we read of Ahithophel. David's counselor who is turned against him. He provides wisdom and counsel to Absalom to go and destroy David before it's too late. And his counsel is ignored. And when his advice is not followed, Absalom, set, pardon, uh, Ahithophel sets his home in order. He goes home and hangs himself out of hopeless despondency. Oh, how precious little it takes to leave someone utterly obsessed with self-pity and sorrow over their lot when they have no hope in the Lord. In the royal throne room, Ahithophel is hopelessly depressed. And in exile, in danger, David sleeps peacefully and is renewed. Here we see the hope of God's anointed king. This anointed king is one who takes refuge in the Lord. Even when a great many of things rail against him, he lays his head down to rest. For it's the Lord who sustains him. It is the Lord who holds his head in his hand like a sleeping child. And in his rest, David's trust in the Lord is made visible. Thomas Scott has a wonderful quote. I'm not going to read the whole thing. In commenting on such rest as this, Thomas Scott says this, We will think lightly of our own afflictions if we look unto Jesus. 
and contrast his glory and grace with the contempt and cruelty with which he has been treated. Having yielded himself to death, he sanctified the grave. He became the first fruits of the resurrection. His head was then lifted up above his enemies, and thus he has opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. His enemies, therefore, will surely be disappointed and perish, but his people may go down to the grave as if they go down to their beds in hope and comfort. For the same God watches over them in both. And at length they will arise to everlasting happiness. So David sleeps. And David arises sustained by the Lord. And his tone grows stronger. What was weeping is now confident crying out. And I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Where he once cried out, David now sings as he looks about the masses swarming around him. Where in the beginning, he was more like the spies who upon entering the promised land saw all those who were dwelling there. And seeing they were great in size, in their minds they became as small as grasshoppers. But now, David's eyes are set back on his Lord. And he watches as the great masses fade away. He uses a word here to suggest that there are nearly endless enemies all about him. But look to his response. I will not be afraid of all of these myriads. Why? Because the number of his enemies in the presence of his Lord God is utterly meaningless. He's the Lord of hosts. The omnipotent one easily disposes of millions as he does of tens or one. He is Yahweh God. Yet see that here his lack of fear is in no way due to some kind of overconfidence in himself. Not even as if he trusts in the Lord and that the Lord has just simply handed over power to him to conquer and wield on his own. For hear his next cry. Though he will not be afraid, hear what he still clings to. Arise, says verse 7. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. There is a great verse to put on a coffee cup. Possibly have it on a nice sweater for a cozy day in. Broken teeth. Not necessarily what we cling to when we're downtrodden. And yet ought we not. David's confidence in the Lord doesn't keep him from praying. It drives him to it. For he knows who is the one who may save him. David cries out for God to stand up. To step in. To settle this once and for all. Oh simply stand O Lord and the world will crumble before you. He calls on God to strike his enemies on the cheek and break their teeth. 
Let me explain. This draws up imagery of wild animals who are hunting and harming indiscriminately. Hurting any who would cross their path. And David cries out that the Lord would make it so that his enemies will be made ultimately harmless. That he would cripple their power to just destroy. Like a vicious great white shark is made to be nothing but an angry, wet worm. When its teeth are crushed to dust. When it seeks to bite a magnificent hole of a massive ship. Oh, floppy wet worm. It has no power. The shark may thrash and it might make waves about it, but it will never carry another victim to its doom. David's enemies are like wild beasts thirsting for his blood, fierce and merciful, merciless, but God has already put it into them to have no real power to harm him. David's confidence in the Lord turns from him calling out for God's defense. Now instead he cries out for his enemies to be stopped in their tracks. Interesting also, he doesn't cry for their blood to be spilled. He doesn't cry for their heads to be removed. He cries for their power to harm to be ceased. And nothing more. Strike their cheek. And break only their teeth. Verse 8. His apex. His confidence. The Salahs were telling us to pause because the world saw that there is no salvation in God. And David calls to mind the fact that that is the only place to, he has ever found salvation. And yet he calls us once again to pause when he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. He ends his song drawing his attention to his conclusion. His hope and his dependence is upon the Lord. The numbers that mass against him. Salvation is from the Lord. Though they say God has abandoned him, salvation belongs to the Lord. David is not hoping in his strength. He is not finding salvation there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's not trusting in his chariots or horses. There is no salvation there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. David wants those who hear his song to know just where to turn when the world is burning. He points our attention to who the Lord is and binds our souls to finding hope only in Him. That salvation belongs to the Lord. David cries out in his confidence and now cries out that the Lord would shine His blessing upon His people. Remember who it is that rebels against Him. It is His people. Oh, David steps in as a meteor, mediator, pardon. He's not falling rock. He is a mediator. He steps between God and man. And having his head risen up against those who have risen up against the anointed king, David cries out for the teeth to be crushed of the enemy. 
that their head would be smashed, that they would be left harmless, unable to continue their wickedness. David prays that God would bring forth his salvation and that he would pour out his blessing on those who once called out for David's blood. Now what does this have to do with any of us? We know that David writes that his people might know where to turn in the midst of agonizing realities. He is raw and real about his experience. Hear David say that this blessed road, this true prosperity, is one that is filled with enemies. Yet God has put his king on his holy hill. He does indeed presently rule and reign. We then see this beautiful psalm come to living color when we see it in the life and lips of Christ Jesus. In Christ, God has sent the fulfillment of the anointed king. In Christ, we see the king rejected by his own people. We see the king led before the councils of the world and those who welcomed him as a king now cry out for his blood. In Christ, we see the king cry out to the Lord in the garden of Gethsemane. We see the spectators of the cross crying out to the seemingly defeated king of the Jews. They say he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. Oh, so similar is it to he has no salvation in God. We see the king stand between God and man, and we hear him cry out, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. We have a greater king in Christ Jesus. We have also then a greater salvation. David was surrounded on every side and was delivered from his enemy Absalom. Yet in Christ, it was not just most of his people who rose up against him, but everyone born in flesh. It was not because of Jesus' sin like David's, Rather, it was due to the sin of all the world. God delivered David by striking Absalom down, hanging him from a tree, and having him pierced through. That's how Absalom found his end. But God delivered Christ, God's anointed king, by hanging him from a tree, by piercing him through on behalf of the rebelling hordes. Raising him from the pit covered in stone and bestowing upon him all of his people and allowing his blessing to pour out for all eternity for those who are buried and raised to new life in him. For those in this room who do not have that hope, where you cannot say, this my soul clings to, Possibly you have a gnawing sense that you're going through moralistic motions, but with no true life with Christ. Possibly you find yourself here for some other reason than to worship the eternal creator God. Whatever may have gotten you here, would you hear the cry of this man, David? Hear the cry of this man filled with sin, who brought destruction upon his own home, 
who was a worshiper of the Lord God in the light, but a worship, worshiper of wickedness in the shadows of night. Hear his cry, his utter dependence, his confidence, and hear his rest. Your life will be filled with many anxieties and troubles. Your heart was built to yearn for the one that can provide needed rest. Only can it be found in him. Let us then repent from the foolish endeavor to be self-lording. Turn away from my longing to be my own deliverer, whether by moralism or by lowering God's standard, where you run to in crisis will show you where you find your hope of salvation. Let David assure you, by God's own proof, that there is salvation in none other than Christ Jesus the King. Would you take this to heart? That this God, when raised, when we have raised up against Him, is His own creation. He sent His King to purchase my deliverance from sin. He calls you today to repent from your sin. Have faith in Christ alone, in whom all salvation find its dwelling. May you sing this song with David and run to him who can save. Oh, he stands waiting. For you who are in Christ, in the midst of any crisis, this is the salvation that has been purchased for you. In the midst of wars without or the war against your own flesh. Turn in that moment to the Lord and then do not stop until confidence in Him might be the only thing that can ooze out. Turn to the God who hears and responds. Salvation is in the Lord. Cry out continually when all seems dark, but then turn your mind to renew in your thinking what is true of Him. He is a shield that has no harder of a time wiping away all united enemies against Him as He does wiping away every tear. When you lay down and rest, do not let your mind race with worries and fears as if you have any hope of delivering yourself like a mouse caught in a lion's den. Trust the one that closes even the mouths of lions. Rest your heart in his providential hand. And with each deliverance from some earthly difficulty and danger, call it to mind. Remember it anew. That it is only just a foretaste of the final deliverance that is to come. We have a greater salvation. We have a greater hope. Because we have a greater king. The Lord did not reject his anointed. But he has made a way of salvation to all people through him. According to Titus 2, 11 through 12. 
Now his people can sing this song in the fullest sense. When the world rises up against them, we may lay down and rest. For salvation belongs to the Lord. We can expect no more than our master Christ expected in this world. He said, they've persecuted me. You will have trials and tribulations. Plan for suffering and difficulty. Plan to need to be fully dependent upon the Lord for help. For this has been promised. When our great enemy, our own sinful heart, rises up within us, it rises as a wild animal whose teeth have been ground to powder. Rejoice, you who are in Christ, for you are attacked by a serpent whose head has been stomped upon. There is no more poison able to cling to your veins. For as one theologian eloquently said it, the dragon lost his sting when he dashed it into the soul of Christ. Father, in this day of weakness, weary hand and fainting knee, in this hour of fear and darkness, now for help we turn to thee. Let the sighing of the needy come into thy listening ear. Let thy people in their pleading know thee gracious Find thee near. Let us now turn to the Lord in response to his word. Each of us, let us turn our hearts to be renewed with the joyful hope that is to be found in these gracious words. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May his blessing be on his people. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your king, whom you have set to eternally rule and reign. And you have set those in Christ in him. The shield about me took on flesh that my flesh might not be torn but that his might that my blood might not be shed but that his would. Lord, that the teeth of the enemy including the teeth I bear in my own soul would be crushed. That all the world would know salvation belongs to you and you alone. And you, almighty God, have poured out your blessing to your rebellious forgiven people. We pray you would bind these things to our hearts. Bind them to our minds. Lord, that we might take comfort and rest in the true anointed King. 
proclaim your salvation and invite others to receive the blessing we've received by being your people. We pray this all in Christ's name.